Hey folks, once again, it's John. Once again, it's AS for Alcoholic podcast. Today's conversation is with Peter Murphy. He is a sober writer and we talked about his story through waking up in a gutter in Wales to running workshops on writing in Atlantic City. Um, what a great conversation. He helped me get over my judgment of using the word transformative when I talk about sobriety and writing. Uh, we talked a lot about, about faith and about prayer and about putting it down on the page and how that can actually change your life. And I couldn't agree more with, with that statement and with many of the other ones that he made. So um, without further ado, here is my conversation with Peter Murphy. I appreciate your time, um, your honesty, all of the all of the things that come along with sharing this kind of stuff. Um, I was going through this morning, going through uh, your website, and um, there's lots of great stuff on there. By the way, uh, as somebody who who writes, who you know spends their time pretending to be a writer, sometimes you know how it is. Uh, there was lots. I really enjoyed the uh, the proofreading part, the the ah. roof. Roof reading, roof reading, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That was great, yeah. um, and you know, I want to talk to you more about the importance of writing in sobriety because I know it's something that's really important to me. But um, I'd like to trace back a little bit and uh, ask you where things began with you and alcohol. <laughs> yeah, in the beginning. Yeah. In the beginning, yes. In the beginning. Um, my father was a GI. Uh, in uh, right before D-Day, he was stationed in a small city in Wales called Newport. And my father had a hankering for classical music. I don't know how he got that. He was a longshoreman, but he loved classical music and heard that there was a pub in Newport that played classical music. So he went there and uh, there was no classical music, but he fell in love with the barmaid. And so um, the, uh, the pub was called the Windsor Castle Hotel. And so I guess my relationship with alcohol began there because uh, they met at a bar after uh -huh. the war. He went back and married uh, Thelma Elias Samuel, my mother's name. And um, uh, they moved to America where uh, on uh, to New York City on the west side of Manhattan, where my father continued to be a longshoreman. But my mother wasn't happy. So they moved back to Wales. And that's where I was born in the okay. Windsor Castle Hotel, where I lived the first few years of my life in a pub. And then back to New York, my mother wasn't happy, back to Wales, she wasn't happy, back to New York. And uh, when I was seven years old, she committed suicide. Um, and uh, thus my troubles began. So we were moved around from place to place, a boarding school, which was miserable, other families, et cetera, et cetera. And um, uh, then I was uh, in a situation where I was abused by a priest for about a year. Didn't understand. I was uh, 10 or 11 years old. I didn't understand mm -hmm. what was happening, but I just felt uh, I was going to go to hell because it felt dirty. And um, when I was about 15, I mean, I'd been drinking socially before then, you know, from about 12 years old. You go to a party right. and or yeah. something, so you drank it. But at 15, it became a, a love affair. Um, I fell in love with two things at that time. Um, one was um, basketball, three things basketball. Uh, the other was poetry, which was very strange. And the third was alcohol. And I thought I always wanted to uh, have poetry and alcohol in my life. I thought they would be a big part of it. And um, that's when I began. So I was in high school at the time. And by the time that was a sophomore, by the time I was a senior in high school, I was uh, pretty much drunk most of the time. Mm -hmm. I somehow became editor of the yearbook, which was a big mistake. Uh, whoever did that. 
and uh, there was a refrigerator in the dark room that I kept stocked with beer. Um, it was, you know, supposed to be used for, for film, right? but I didn't have right. any money. So this was really uh, awful. Um, I sold yearbook subscriptions for people to buy the yearbooks and use that money to buy the beer, always meaning to pay it back. Um, and so it became, um, you know, just, a, a, a just, I just had no hope. I just figured this is how it's going to be. And I just was a miracle. I wasn't uh, arrested and uh, gone to jail, but that may have been a good thing. Had it been, had it been, it may have stopped at that point. Right. I think, you know, and it's amazing how quickly the behavior uh, turns when, you know, when we start drinking alcoholically, like, you know, you're saying 18 and we're supposed to be stocking the, the fridge with with film. And already we are pulling out of the kitty to feed our habit so quickly. Um, you know, it's the the cunning, baffling and powerful thing that gets gets uh, that's talked about with alcohol. Um so at this point, you graduate high school. You are in love with poetry. What, who's your fa- what's your favorite basketball team at this point? Well, at that point, um, I had a tragedy. Part, this was part of the thing. Is I, I had a, an accident playing basketball. I broke a collarbone and six ribs. Um, so that was the end of my basketball career when I, um, oh. when I was 16. That didn't last long. Um, but the first college I went to was St. Bonaventure University. And the big star then was Bob Lanier. I don't know if you heard of Bob Lanier, but he became an All-American in the uh, NBA played for the Detroit Pistons. So he was a junior when I got there. And so I became a St. Bonaventure fan for that year. But um, I was drinking. I flunked out after a semester. Um, then went to another college and flunked out. And then a third one and flunked out. So at that point, I decided, let me be near what I was love. So I went to work at a bar, which made sense. Right. <laughs> I was a bartender for many years. It was great. All access, yeah. you know. No, no, you don't have to get yeah. up early in the morning. Um it's it's it was it seems like the dream right that's right yep um and how I long did you work in the bar <laughs> mm-hmm. exactly right about two and a half years okay yeah yeah, yeah. and what um, was this bar what, what kind of bar was it i described my it was actually a nightclub in uh mm-hmm. in queens uh new york it was a very posh place i don't want to mention it because uh, uh, people are still around that were part of that even though it was a long time ago um but i started off uh as a busboy, basically hauling ice back and forth mm-hmm. and then became the daytime manager because the other daytime manager got drafted and which was uh you know what's happening back then that was 1969 so i got that job and then i was bartending um at night and um it was a great way to um you know to meet girls which was also important in my life i wasn't very sure. good at it but it was uh, it was you know it was uh, like i got to practice uh-huh. and um I described my early life before, while I was in high school as early derelict period. And this period here after high school is mid derelict period before going into late derelict period, which happened later. Um, so that was about two and a half years. And um, I got in a lot of trouble. I um, wound up getting involved with a, um, a young woman who had been a heroin addict and she had just gotten clean when I met her and uh, we learned to drink together. Um, mm-hmm. And um, it was uh, a destructive relationship for both of us. And I, I, I always thought that she was the bad one in this relationship, but I realized, no, I was, I was as bad for her as she was for me. And I, I, I wish I could uh, apologize to her for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but um, it got to the point where I, I had to do something. Um, she got me a thousand dollars in debt to, this is going to sound ridiculous, a mafia connected dentist. Um, and I kept getting these threatening phone calls. Um, so I did what a brave person does. I ran away. And what I did was I, I, 
I ran back to Wales. I hadn't been to Wales since I was three years old. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if it was even a country. I wasn't quite sure because my father never talked about it. And um, I figured I'd go for a couple of weeks, two or three weeks and let things calm down and figure out what to do and then return to uh, New York and you know, deal with the problems. But once I got to... Uh, once I got to Britain, I realized nobody in the entire continent knows what a, what a screw up I am. And I decided uh, maybe I can change my life. And this began late derelict period. This I was there for almost a year. The three okay. months into a year. And um, it changed my life. I mean, eventually I did get sober. Um, I hit the proverbial rock bottom. I woke up in a gutter in, in Cardiff, Wales, uh, nine months later. And um, I was 21 years old and decided um, I had to change my life. So you hit that rock bottom very early. It was early in my life, but it was five years into it, five or six years into right. it. So, um, right. You know, I didn't think I was going to live much longer than that at that point. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I, I, I had, um, at that point, I was living in a commune. Uh, it was 1971. That's what you did, or 72. Um, and um, I decided uh, I was so unhappy, I should either kill myself get my ear pierced or join this new religion that I had discovered that I heard of that seemed to have a, a kind of promise. And all of those things seemed about equal. I, no, I'll become part of the religion. No, I'll, kill no, I'll get my ear pierced. Um, so it, uh, I love that the ear piercing, the cult and suicide were all on, on equal they, footing they were, at that point. They, right? They were that all possibilities. Yeah. And uh, so I tried the suicide part that didn't work. <laughs> and that's why I woke up that morning. Um, I mm. wasn't planning to wake up that morning in the gutter, but I did. And uh, so I figured, all right, let me try, let me try the next option. So I never got my ear pierced. <laughs> <laughs> huh? So, so you join, you join this new religion. What is I this new it. religion? It's called the Baha'i faith. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. B-A-H-A apostrophe I. It has, it's, it rings, it rings a bell. Yeah. And what attracted me to it, I'll tell you what didn't attract me. What attracted me to it is um, I've been raised as a Catholic and went to pretty much Catholic schools was, I mentioned earlier, abused mm-hmm. by the and um, I had decided I was an atheist, but when I came across these Baha'is, which I occurred in Ireland, I was watching around uh, the British Isles, um, they said that, um, first of all, they didn't have a clergy, they don't have a clergy, and that, okay, that's good, but they also said that um, the earth is one country and mankind is citizens, and that uh, they believed that the, the purpose for today is to have unity, world unity, and to eliminate mm-hmm. prejudices. What had happened just before I met them, I was uh, in Northern Ireland in uh, Londonderry, and this is during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Uh, okay. And I got involved in a shooting incident um, between Catholics, uh, these Catholic drivers in a, in, a, in a car I was in, and the soldiers, they, they were shooting at us. And I realized when I survived that, why are we killing ourselves over religion? Why can't we see we're all human beings? And I thought that was my idea. You know, I, I was my first original idea as, a, as an adult, I was felt smart. And then a week later, when I met these Baha'is, they said, the earth is one country and mankind is citizens. And I was, I was pissed. Wait a minute. That's my idea. But uh, <laughs> and then believing this for, you know, over a hundred years. So it, they were kind and um, they didn't have any of the baggage, seemed to have any of the baggage that I had had in my religious life. The trouble is they believed in God and they didn't mm. drink. And um, I would have probably joined them right away if they believed in alcohol and not God, but you know, that didn't happen. But um, months later, when I was in Wales, I decided um, maybe I should look into that again, because um, despite what I believe, what I believe isn't working. <laughs> right, right. And um, so I eventually I became a Baha'i. And it wasn't what my plan was, but I and I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how I was not going to drink. But I decided um, 
you know, let me try. I never heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know what a 12 step program was, but I decided right. um, I wasn't going to drink that day. And then I didn't know what I was going to do the next day. I said, I'll worry about not drinking tomorrow or tomorrow. And I sort of on my own came across this one day at a time thing. Mm -hmm. um, stupidly, you know, I just figured I didn't know what else to do. And um, I haven't had a drink in uh, since. Wow. So in <clears throat> what was different or maybe describe a little bit of the night you said um, you didn't plan on waking up and yeah. hitting that rock bottom. What was, you know, what was different about that night that made you decide you were done? And then what was it about the next day that made you after waking up when you didn't want to <laughs> make you decide yeah. that you were done drinking? <clears throat> Nobody's ever asked that before. That's a good question. <clears throat> The night, um, the commune I had, had gotten into um, when I discovered it, when I moved in there in January of 1972, um, it had been sort of an uplifting experience. There were maybe a dozen people living in this row house in the middle of Cardiff, and um, it was fun. Uh, I got a job uh, working at a, at a construction site, which wasn't fun, but I was holding my own. But um, everybody was doing serious drugs. And um, in my own relationship, I did drugs seriously for about six months and decided no more drugs. That was too mm -hmm. bad. Um, and um, three or four months later, there were over 20 people living there, um, sleeping in shifts, sleeping on the floor. And uh, nobody was paying rent except for me and a couple of others. Nobody was uh, cleaning the place. It became worse and worse. Yeah. And um, the job I was working on became worse and worse, uh, more and more depressing. There was a, the miners were not on strike. The coal miners were not on strike in Wales. And uh, there were blackouts throughout the US for seven or eight hours a day. There was no heat, no light, and it was cold. And I was physically um, uncomfortable. There was very little food. I became um, just more and more depressed and I didn't see any way out of this. I had very little money. Right. I didn't know what else to do. I didn't know where to go if I, if I left there. And then um, the police uh, came and uh, they were getting ready to bust the place. In fact, they parked the car outside the house for, uh, for two or three weeks. And I kept saying, we're never going, oh, we're going to get you soon. Make sure you're ready. You know, we're coming in and arresting everybody. And I was, by this point, I was also there illegally. My visa had expired and I just was, got so depressed. I didn't know what to do. So one night, it was March 25th, 1972. I decided that's it. And I, I did drugs that night for the first time in a, maybe three or four years. And I uh, went down to a pub and drank whiskey, which I tried not to do because it was expensive and it wasn't working enough. <laughs> <laughs> I drank water. Mm -hmm. And that was the thing, you know, it's it just this it damn this weak whiskey. And uh, the next thing I know, it's the next morning. And it was raining and uh, I had peed myself in the gutter. I was just lying there not far from the door. Mm -hmm. So that's what happened. And um, I was surprised that I was alive, surprised I was awake. Right. Uh, I didn't make it to the building and the construction site. I was planning on jumping off, but I, I didn't make it that far. That was an extra two blocks. Um, and I was also afraid that, gee, it may not be high enough um, and may not do the job. And I, I can't, even, can't even kill myself right. So I was afraid of that. And um, I had attended, I had gotten in touch with the Baha'is in, um, in Newport, the city I had been born in a few weeks before and went to a couple of their, uh, this couple invited me to the home for dinner. I mean, it was just very kind people. And um, they would told me about this meeting they were having with a special guest coming from London who was going to give a talk also in Newport. And um, that was that day. And when I woke up out of that gutter and I was soaking wet and I went into the house and tried to get dry and warm, I didn't want to go out again. There was no way in the world, but I had promised these kind people I was going to go to their stupid meeting 
And at that point, I felt the only thing I had was my word. And, you know, I figured, okay, the pubs opened at 11. I could leave, get to the meeting by around 10, stay for a little bit, show my face and go to, go to a pub. And I actually planned to go to the Windsor Castle Hotel, which is right down the block from where, um, where this meeting was, that, that place where I started out. So I made it to the meeting. I was soaking wet by the time I got there because of the rain and uh, just staring at the clock, waiting for the time to happen. And um, afterwards, somebody offered me a cup of tea. So I had a cup of tea and I was getting ready to leave. And um, I started talking with the guy who was giving us talk. And uh, he said, well, what do you think about this? So I said, well, it makes sense. And, um, you know, this religion. And, uh, you know, I believe what you're talking about, getting rid of prejudices and uniting the world. I said, uh, he said, why don't you become, why don't you join us? And I said, well, I, I can't, I can't do that. I can't, I can't live that kind of a life. I didn't want to say I, I, I drank. I was too embarrassed. Mm. Um, but I said, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to join, <clears throat> not be able to live up to it. And then he said something that shocked me. He said, you know, if you believe this and don't join, you're more of a hypocrite than if you did join and try, but can't live up to it. And he just called me a hypocrite. <laughs> But I realized he was right. Yeah. And so um, that's, that's what I did. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I, I decided, okay, I'm going to just trust this. Right. I still had trouble believing in God at that point. And I figured, um, all right, these people believe in it. They're kind people. They're smart. <laughs> they have a lot more going on than I do. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that, it's that realization of like, oh, these uh, it's, it appears that somebody else has figured this out. Perhaps something, yeah. anything could work for me because that was the, it was the anything part, anything. <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I didn't know how I was not going to drink, but as I said earlier, I, um, I figured, all right, I'm not going to drink the rest of this day. Right. And I didn't go down to the Windsor Castle hotel. Instead I, I hung around and when the meeting ended, there were some young people from a, a city in Western world called Glenethley, try to pronounce that three times fast. And that, uh, they were good. They were hanging around. So I hung around with them. We went to dinner and the pub, it was a Sunday. The pubs closed early on a Sunday. And, you know, I stayed with them till the pubs closed. I go, okay, I didn't drink today. And mm -hmm. I went back to a Cardiff and um, the next day um, I figured, all right, I'm not going to drink today. And um, as I said, I, I made. It. Yeah. I am um, a similar thing where I didn't find any sort of, I knew people that had done 12 step and, um, and they had, told me that it was available, but nobody had ever really like pressed me about it. And so my first several months, it was like, okay, just this one day. And then I will get through this day and I'll figure this one out. And okay, well, okay. I made it now I've made it four days. Now I've made it five days. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so you are at this point, you're starting to focus on the one day at a time thing without having any sort of connection to a 12 step program, but you're also, invested somewhat in this Baha'i, right? In right. the, in the, in that, in that faith. Um, although God is still elusive at this point. It was <laughs> one of the things that the Baha'i said uh, about God is that it's an unknowable essence. That's the definition. Mm -hmm. So whatever we say to try to describe it, her, him, it, it's wrong. And, and that appealed to me because I couldn't figure it out. Yeah. And, uh, I began trusting though. Um, I began trying to read the Baha'i writings. I got some books I tried saying prayers. I didn't realize I was going to have to say prayers. I didn't like that part because I'd given up on prayer because prayer had given up on me a long time earlier. Mm -hmm. um, but some of the prayers were beautiful. Um, and that, uh, you know, from a poetic point of view, and I considered myself a poet at the time, and uh, that attracted me to language. 
So I said, you know, I tried and I tried um, and it gradually they became friendly, the prayers. Mm. Uh, they weren't uh, sending me to hell. They weren't, you know, condemning me. They were uplifting me. There were prayers about um, aspiration, the prayers about um, overcoming tests and difficulties, over prayers about um, becoming a better person. And I, they, they appealed. Yeah. Um, did you find, I mean, or I should say, when did you find AA or when did, when did 12 step, um, that, that sort of, uh, that transition yeah. into that? I didn't know anything about AA. I didn't know anything about alcoholism. I knew I was a drunk, but right. every, but most of the people in my family were drunks. I, I didn't, that was normal. I didn't, see myself as being any different from anybody else until I left New York city. I came back to New York, left, grew up a bit and started, you know, being in the world. They were like, okay, not everybody had the same experiences I did. Maybe that was a little bit odd. And, um, 12 years later, I met a woman who, um, asked me if I was a friend of, uh, Bill. And I, I coincidentally, this was at a Shakespeare conference. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I ah. said, sure, why, wouldn't, why else would I be here? <laughs> and she said, no, no, that's not what I meant. I said, what did you mean? She said, you know, um, AA. And I thought she meant the auto club. <laughs> I, I mean, they were so stupid about this. Right. And then when she said, alcoholics, no, why would you think that? And she started talking. And all of a sudden, I was like hit with a hammer. There's a word for it. I didn't know there was a word for it. I I was an alcoholic. Wow. I didn't know. And so I, 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 she said she was going to meetings and she talked about the meetings and I kept that filed in my head. And uh, three years later, by this point, I was sober for 15 years. Yeah. I was going to say you, so you were doing this on your own, on my own ostensibly for 15 years. And then I got in trouble. Um, I was at an artist colony in upstate New York and um, there were prize winning poets there. There were novelists whose books were, you know, won these prizes. And there was me. And I, you know, just felt totally inadequate. Um, and uh, there was a lot of drinking going on and, uh, you know, social drinking. Nobody was getting messed up. But um, everywhere I went, there was just bottles and bottles and bottles. And um, so here's the strange thing that happened, this mystical thing. Ooh. Um, I decided, let me leave for the, an evening and, you know, cause I, I don't know what to do cause I, I don't want to drink and there's so much going around and everybody's kindly offering me drinks. And nearby there was a, a college that had a poetry reading series going on. There was a conference going on. So I went over there and I'm listening to a couple of poetry and I'm, I don't even know what they were saying. I wasn't paying attention, but I saw the back of a head of a woman with long blonde hair. And this looked like the back of the head of the woman from that Shakespeare conference that I attended the one who told me about the meetings. Mm-hmm. And I said, it's got to be her, but why would she be here? She lives in a different state. So after the reading, she turns around, it's not her. But I figured, all right, I did something I never do. I went and talked to her anyway. I'm, I'm not the kind of a guy who talks to strange women. And I just said, hi, we started talking. And I said, this is the worst pickup line in the world. You remind me of somebody I know. <laughs> and, you know, she doesn't run away. And I said, she, uh, you know, she talked about, uh, she um, would go to a, uh, AA meetings or something like that. I said this. And the woman says, um, oh, I know I said, I didn't say, I said, she said she was a friend of Bill. And she said, I'm a friend of Bill. Wow. And I said, wow. And I said, she talked about meetings. And she said, I'm going to a meeting when I leave here. And that was the ooh kind of thing. So I went to this meeting with her in the basement of a nearby church. 
And um, I was at that artist colony for another two or three weeks. And I went there pretty much every night for the next two or three weeks. And um, it was, I was being taken care of. The universe was watching me. Yeah. And maybe all those prayers I said for 15 years were kicking in. And um, when I most needed it, right, it was there. Right. I think that's a, um, <clears throat> I think one of the symptoms of my alcoholism is my uh, impatience with things. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of talk about the promises. And uh, one of the other things that I was sometimes quickly and sometimes slowly. And I always think like, why does it have to be so slow? <clears throat> and um, that's just me being stubborn and impatient. And so when I hear you talk about 15 years of doing these things to find this moment where you're like, aha, this thing happens. And, mm -hmm. and I mean, that's, that's awesome, <laughs> you know, and it's also, it's quite hopeful that perhaps the tiny little bit of work that I put in every morning or every week, there's some other thing that's waiting down the road. And just because I don't get it today, because my, mm -hmm. my, my ego wants it right. My, myself wants it so bad today. doesn't mean that it's not being not necessarily waiting for you, but it's, it's being created in some way in your own mind or in the world or however we like to look at it, you know? Um, but those aha moments, those God shots, as they call mm -hmm. them sometimes. So this woman takes you to these meetings for the next two to three weeks Yep. And how does it feel? What is it? I mean, what is, is it? I, I felt, I felt like I didn't want to belong there <laughs> because that would be admitting. Uh -huh. um, and I, 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 I wasn't quite ready yet. Um, okay. But several other things happened is that um, I started having drinking dreams and um, they frightened me. And um, I started writing about them, which was all the only thing I knew I could do. I started writing poems about them. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that I started getting, um, this is going to sound really, ooh, even more. My mother, who had died when I was seven, started visiting. Mm -hmm. um, not in a, you know, like ghost kind of way or, you know, ectoplasm, but I just felt her presence. And um, I felt both comforted and, and startled by it. So I started writing about her and I'd never written about my alcohol. I had never drunkenness. I'd never written about my mother. And I started to do that. And I uh, continued doing it and, um, over the next few years, and um, it, it began to work it out. I began to figure mm. things out and accept. That was the big thing is accept that um, who I am and try to get rid of shame because so much of my life, early life, was involved in shame. Yeah. And that, that's a killer. And I think that's part of what my mother's problem had been with shame, why, why she was so sad. Yeah. Um, that's, that's fascinating uh, that it, <clears throat> you know, the, the, the idea that here's this thing that makes it makes sense, right? This group of people who come together, this program, and it makes a lot of sense, but we don't want to be a part of it because, because yeah. So, so for 15 years, you're sober, you're living life, you're doing things. Everything seems relatively fine, right? But you're still living with the shame and then also not having the language right? to be That's a big part of it. <clears throat> And, and to, to realize that, oh, here's, this is how I can define it. This is how I can describe it. And then being able to work it out, because I think that that too is something that still, 
in this in this age of information, right? Mm-hmm. And people are still are they don't want to admit it. I mean, nobody does. <laughs> I've yet to meet somebody in the throes of alcoholism who wants to admit it because that would require yeah. change. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But finding the language is such an important thing and being able to express it to ourselves, let alone anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, what about, so, and I just recently <laughs> had a drinking dream. I haven't had them in years uh-huh. and I don't know where it came from. There is, I mean, well, I mean, I, I'm tracing back and going like, what haven't I done? What part of my program have I not worked on? These kinds of things, whatever it was, but it's still struck me almost seven years sober. Haven't had a drinking dream in probably like five years. Mm-hmm. I woke up, I was flooded with the guilt and the shame. I felt mm-hmm. that I had ruined something, yeah. um, that things were over that. And I, and it, it didn't last too long, but for like a couple of hours that morning, like it took me to get that feeling out. And I was like, Oh my God. And then I, I had spoken to somebody who was 19 years sober And they said something about the six or seven, eight year mark where it can be kind of blah, you know, and people this, that, and the other. And I was like, well, maybe this is just a reminder of what's waiting. Like you can always go back, you know, and my friend in the dream poured me a big vodka on the rocks because that was, that was the last, you know, the last drinks. That's pretty specific. Yes, yes, that's pretty yes. specific. That's that's dangerous. It was, yeah. it was a vodka on the rocks. Yeah, um, yeah. I asked him for a double. He only gave me a single. I was very angry in that dream. But um, but yeah. So I, I think that it was like a just a nice little reminder of yeah. what what is what is there for me. Um, so you start. So AA finally clicks for you. Um, at what point do you say this is for me? this is who I am after was, those few weeks. Yeah. It was after I got home and I started looking at the writing I had done mm-hmm. and I realized, okay, um, I, um, my name is Peter and I'm an alcoholic. Um, I never went back to AA after I left. I didn't uh, feel the need to, I still had a sense of community. I was with Baha'is um, mm-hmm. where I live in South Jersey. And I, I had what I didn't have. I had my family. Um, I had more of a security and um, when I went back to the artist con, I was invited back three or four more times. I felt much more secure. I didn't, um, I didn't feel inadequate. I didn't feel like they made a mistake by inviting me here. I felt more of um, that I belonged, which was important, I think, uh, for me. I wanted to say something else. I was, I, you made me think of this. Um, when I stopped drinking, I also stopped feeling. I don't know if this is common mm. or not, but um, because there was so much pain and so much sorrow in my early life. Um, I, I didn't know this until later on and after, many years after I stopped drinking, but I also stopped feeling joy. I stopped feeling the uh, ranges of emotion that I had felt earlier. Um, and, and I realized I was keeping it under control. I just want to you know, stay in this narrow focus because if you go too much one way, you can go too much the other way. And I wasn't doing it consciously, but it was um, only after a couple of moments where I, I realized, wait a minute, um, I should be feeling something more here and um, refusing or being afraid to allow myself to feel that. And once I started to, um, this was after um, those, those times at the arts college, after I admitted this, I began to feel more comfortable allowing myself to feel stuff, uh, both joy as well as sadness. Um, yeah. And there's a big parts of life that I was um, deliberately without knowing it, you know, not letting myself feel 
Yeah. Yeah. I think um, I've had conversations about, you know what, man, I'm just going to find, I'm just going to be content. I'm not, I don't want to feel crazy either way. Um, And this feels to me like a, a a step in the right direction. (laughs) Right. And and maybe it is in that I don't want to feel the dark despair that I did Mm -hmm. um, from any number of um, things that I dealt with in the past of my own doing and, you know, from growing up, but it does also close the door on getting inspired, getting excited, um, you know, and just, and, and maybe, and I'm just thinking of this now, I don't, I hadn't thought of this before, but maybe in, in some way it, it is still living in fear because I don't want to feel those things. Mm-hmm. I yeah, mean, definitely, definitely the fear part. <laughs> um, so when do you, how, how do you, how did you get out of that uh, focus of contentment to feel joy and, and actually want to, or be able to feel sadness? Once I started admitting it, when I started writing it, I started publishing and I started talking about it. Um, I think then I felt, okay, well, um, and I found out too, that I wasn't the only person, <laughs> you know, had gone through this, uh, cause, um, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's a disease and it's, it's out there. Once I started, that's the other part of this whole idea of it being a disease that, um, that was a shock to me. I thought it was because I was degenerate, you know, as I said, I had my degenerate periods. Um, so it wasn't a matter of moral, uh, inferiority or something. It was something else. And then, oh, genetics. Oh, that explains an awful lot. Both sides of my family going back uh, generations. So, okay. That's like the high blood pressure and a, and a heart attacks in my family. I get it. And so I think that's when I um, began to, um, I don't say relax, but began to allow myself to feel more, to take more risks emotionally. Um, part of it is service, is trying to help others. And I think a big way of helping others is by making yourself vulnerable you know, just even in talking to people. Um, and by this point, I was also teaching. Um, I taught English and creative writing in Atlantic City here for almost 30 years. And a lot of my students had lives far worse than I did. Um, yeah. Um, and, um, you know, we, we, you know, when I opened myself up, they opened themselves up. And um, one young lady, this actually happened uh, right after I came back from the artist colony in my time at the, at the, um, at the meetings. Um, she, was one of my uh, prized creative writing students, a terrific poet, and she didn't show up in September the way she should have been. And it was this great mystery of what happened. Uh, you know, she wasn't there. She finally mm-hmm. shows up in uh, November or December, and she's a different person. You know, she had been this sort of uh, my perception, this very prim, very um, upper middle class young lady. And now she's, <laughs> she's very, I don't say loose, I don't mean loose in a negative way, but she's very more relaxed with herself. Mm-hmm. And turns out that over the summer, she had been uh, drunk under the boardwalk and had been raped, gang raped, and um, was institutionalized. And then um, she was in, uh, in a program, a residential program, where she, uh, she became sober. Yeah. And uh, so now she's back in school. And she's a pretty, I would say, beautiful young woman. She was maybe 17. And she would cut school in the middle of the day to go to meetings in Atlantic city with all of these you know, men, older men <laughs> like that. And, and she was, she would, they were no match for her by this point. And uh, so I would write her excuse notes or something like that. So she wouldn't get in trouble. 
And then she said to me one day, Mr. Murphy, um, you know about the 13th step? Jesus. You know about the 13th step? <laughs> and I didn't know. What? No, no. So she, you know, she told me, how frank can I be here? Can I? <laughs> you can be as frank as you want. Please okay, do. So, all right. So anyway, so I said, what's that? And she said, well, she learned you don't come to these meetings to get uh, laid because you'll only get fucked. <laughs> and coming, coming from the mouth of this young one, I was like, wow. This yeah. Kid up a lot. Yeah. So she went on and had a short but productive life. She went to college, got a graduate degree. She worked in um, as a counselor. She ran an agency, um, you know, for people in recovery and then died of a heart attack in their 30s. Wow. Which is um, you know, just a tragic, tragic loss. Wow. Because uh, she had been just so um, full of life and, um, you know, to overcome so much. So, um, but I also connected with a lot of other students, you know, many of whom were, as I said, going through worse problems than I did. And I think I was able to, I use poetry a lot of times just to help, uh, help them, just um, have them learn to write. And um, maybe poetry would do for them what it had done for me. And some of them didn't want to write poetry, wanted to write stories and prose. I had to learn how to teach them that too. So that helped me grow. <laughs> yeah. Um, so obviously the um, writing was very important to you very early on. Uh, I would consider myself the same. I had, huge periods of absolutely no productivity and trying to write while I was absolutely drunk. I still have those notebooks and there's just like the handwriting gets worse and worse and worse. There's no legible sentences. And then there's a bunch of swear words across the page. Like it's just terrible. Um, and in sobriety, I guess there's three things that have really hit home for me as far as important is, or were let's I'll use the word transformative, which I'm always hesitant to use because it sounds kind of corny. Yeah. yeah um, but it's, real. it's real, but it's real. And it was getting sober. Um, running for me was something that really transformed my life. And then writing sober, because I always imagined myself, I played my Bukowski role very well. I got, I lived it to the fullest. I had my little bungalow. I drank myself silly. I wrote terrible poems. Yep. I even had a cat. Like I did it all. Um, there's a tattoo on my chest, the bluebird in my heart, all that <laughs> stuff. Right. So, so I lived it and um, it doesn't work. And I, I, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm confident that uh, I want to put all those poems in a collection and call it Bukowski lied. Um, but <laughs> uh, I, I don't like know. That. If, I like that. Yeah. I like that. Um, but in, in sobriety, I took a course out of, it was online this last summer out of Yale university from somebody, the instructor was somebody I know personally um, I do now. And uh, somebody I respect and whose writing I respect. And um, this was also something that was very transformative because in sobriety too, I think we often feel like frauds and in writing that probably, I know a lot of writers who go like, yeah, I'm not really a writer or, <laughs> you know, I can't really write or nobody wants to read my stuff. Or, you know, even I hear myself saying, well, you're just a middle-aged white guy who got sober through running and writing, like what a cliche, what story could you possibly mm -hmm. tell to the world that would be of any interest? But um, the writing has been very transformative, if for nothing else than my daily life of being okay, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
how did you, how did writing help you? And in those early times when you talked about writing about your alcoholism, writing about your mother, um, mm -hmm. I, I imagine there's no sense of like, I'm going to publish this or this will be something of my works. Um, at least for me, it was like, I'm just going to get these things out on paper. How does that help someone? How does writing help someone get sober, stay sober, understand themselves sober mm -hmm. for you? For me, when I first started writing poetry, I was you know 15 and I was writing What Was Me, teenage poetry schlock. And I was interested in expressing myself. And frankly, nobody cares. I didn't even care. So after writing a few hundred very bad poems, um, and realizing girls like boys who are sensitive and what better way than showing girls you're sensitive or showing a poem. That was, that was a, that was a bonus. Mm -hmm. um, but I realized um, after I started reading poetry, which I hadn't done, it's much more than that. I discovered so much from reading poetry, not just about myself, but about the world and about this connection we have to each other through language, through words. That's what I wanted to do. I didn't want to just repeat what had been written. I wanted to write something new and I started writing to discover, writing to reveal to myself, writing to understand. And that was really the key. So when I was writing um, in sobriety and uh, admitting and, and um, writing about my mother, writing about drinking, it was trying to understand the process, trying to understand why I had gotten to that point. And um, one of the things about poetry I could do is I could disguise it. So I, I wrote through myth and fairy tale and comic books, you know, comic stories. Do you know Casper the Friendly Ghost? Mm -hmm. you know oh, yeah. That, who, he was the character. Well, I always thought Casper was very strange because he was a little boy who died and came back, right? Yeah. But he was trying to make friends with the living, but why didn't he go back to the people who loved him? Um, mm. I was wondering about that. And when I was, um, after my mother died, <clears throat> and I was in this home, and some relatives were taking us in, um, I was afraid I was going to be like Casper, that I was going to have to, I wouldn't be able to make friends with these people, with other people. And I'd have to wander the streets of Brooklyn, um, you know, for the rest of my life, trying to make friends because there was nobody I could go back to. You know, I didn't have that people, but why didn't Casper go back? So I wrote a poem about Casper, the friendly ghost, um, about myself as being Casper like that. Um, and that really helped me. Then I wrote another poem um, based on a grim fairy tale. And the fairy tales, the shortest of the grim fairy tales called The Stubborn Child, it goes like this. Uh, once upon a time, they all begin, right? There was a little boy who didn't do what his mother told him to do. And she told him he had to be good or God would strike him dead. Well, he was bad and God struck him dead. This was just a paragraph. And he was buried in the backyard. And uh, he still um, was bad because he raised his hand above the earth. And so the mother went out with a stick and hit the hand. And usually the um, grim fairy tales end um, and he lived happily ever after, right? Mm -hmm. This one ends, and for the first time, he had peace beneath the earth. Um, so it, um, I realized that was my childhood. So I wrote a poem called The Stubborn Child about um, my mother taking me into her grave um, where I continued to fidget. And um, I was trying to be a good boy, even though I was dead, living in this grave with my mother. Um, and it helped me understand that I was still so attached to her and her death. I wrote this poem when I was in my 30s. Yeah. And yeah. that finally, I, um, she hit me so hard. It knocked me right out of the grave. Um, she smacked me with her thin right arm so hard. I, I wound up and I wound up being um, standing in the earth, shaking and not knowing how to walk and learning how, having learned how to walk again.
Mm-hmm. And so that was my sort of metaphor for, um, you know, becoming sober and learning how to live. And um, the poem ends, it took me a long time to find the ending where um, my own daughter, who at the time was about seven or seven years old, is lying in bed, having her own stubborn dreams. And I'm raising my hands uh, above her, whispering, you know, prayers. Um, because one of the things that happened when I became a father is I didn't want to read I knew I was going to make mistakes, but I didn't want to make the same mistakes that my family had done. Let me make new mistakes. I didn't want to screw up my daughter in the same way I had been screwed up with. Let me screw up in other ways, which I've been successful with, but mm-hmm. not in the ways I had been. Um, and so that's what writing can do. It can help you understand. It can help you discover. It can help you reveal. It doesn't solve anything, but it just gives you um, a way to make your way in the world. That's what it's done for me. It gave me an identity too. All of a sudden I would I became a poet and you know that's not you know, what do you want to be when you grow up oh executive this nobody says they want to be a poet <laughs> um but i became that and it and it, and it became something um i made respectable and yeah because i became a teacher um for so many others i was able to share this way of life of um you know living in the world is important making living is important but also paying attention to the um to language paying attention to the soul Paying attention to this 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 other kind of um, abstractions is also important in a way of dealing with it. Yeah. So that's what it had done for me in sobriety, and I think that's how it. I I, I lead writing workshops now for adults, and uh, one of the things um, I always say is change your life. Can I? Um, I don't know if. Um, can I show you a, an image here on? Uh, sure. Up there. Okay. Let me put it on the. Um, what it goes? Yeah. Screen share here. Okay, so says, um, I'm disabled for screen share. Okay, let me put it in, um, if that can, I can put it in the chat. Um, do, 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 how do I do this? So, shoot, I don't know. Okay, that's right, I'll put it in the, in the chat. Um, okay. You can see it, but it's an image. Um, I can even put it in the chat. I don't see the um, uplink here. Let me try it here. No, I can't do it there, but... Um, Okay, I can. Hang on a minute. Well, put in the chat so you can open up. It's a picture of uh, an image. Um, Once it comes up there, you'll see it. Okay. uh, It says, "Change your life." Change your life. It's a large stone that change your life. Um, It'll come up there in a moment. and it's an image from the Berlin Wall. It's one of the sections from the Berlin Wall mm-hmm. that had been graffitied. And it's on display in London outside the Imperial War Museum. Well, when I saw this in London, it's, that's what it became so important to me. That was an image that meant something, both because it's artistic, it's revolutionary because it's part of the Berlin Wall. And it has a message. It's a quote from a Goethe poem that says that you must change your life. And so I used this image um, in my workshops about writing and what writing can do for you and how writing can change your life. I don't know if, you, if you've been able to see it there. Yeah, I see it. It's a, it's a gorgeous image. Um, and it's surprising to me, it's at the Imperial War Museum, a museum you know dedicated to war, but it's actually not about war, it's about people. Yeah. And uh, used the word transformation earlier and it's about transformation. Yeah. So yeah. that's what writing does. Uh, you know, that's what I try to get people to do is that, and I tell people to come to my workshops um, that if you come here, whether it's a day workshop or one that lasts for a week or two, whether it's in the United States or abroad, 
and you leave the same way you came, you wasted your time and your money. Um, you know, you come here to write, but don't leave writing the same way you wrote before. Yeah. Um, and, you know, look at your life the way it can be. So I see writing as a, a transformative force. And one doesn't have to have an addiction problem. Everybody has problems. Everyone is making yeah. their way in the world. And, and writing is one way to um, navigate that world. And from and any, I guess any artistic value would be to make it a, a better world. Yeah. Yeah. When I, when I met the Baha'is, uh, <clears throat> one of the things they said is that art um, raised to the, is raised to the level of worship, that art can be prayer. Mm -hmm. And nobody had ever considered my poetry prayer. And I think that was the other thing that um, attracted me to Baha'i is that, um, you know, when I was growing up, you know, I couldn't tell anybody I was writing poetry. I'd, I'd get beat up mm -hmm. um, or I'd be called, uh, you know, all sorts of names, uh, right. sissy and all this other stuff and worse. But here is this, this religion from God that was saying this was kind of prayer. That got my attention. Yeah. One of the, um, one of the things that changed my mind about prayer too was uh, when you talk about it being poetry, I was, I read a book, one of my favorite musicians, who's also uh, sober, his name is Mike Doty. Uh, he was in a band called Soul Coughing. He was a New York guy for a very long time in the 90s. Um, <clears throat> so he's a musician, but he was also very much a poet. He wrote a book about his experience called The Book of Drugs. Yeah. And in there, he talks about his difficulty with prayer. Like it didn't make sense. Who am I praying to? I'm sitting on a park bench and just like letting it go off into the sky to somebody and Matt, you know, so all these things that it's very difficult for surprisingly difficult for those of us who purport to have large imaginations, but we can't seem to, uh, to yeah. grasp a, an idea of God. But he said in the book, he started writing down the prayers and that made more sense to him. Mm -hmm. And so I just took that. And so now yeah. that's, how I start the morning in the journal is like, what do I want for my prayer today? And mm -hmm. if it's just something general or, you know, and I've also been told that praying for other people works a lot better than praying for yourself. <laughs> so I, I try to keep it out as much as possible, but it's made more sense and made it easier for there to be a practice of prayer in my life, just to write it down every day. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I don't know when if it I, works, but you know, no, that's, it's working. It's yeah. working. When I was uh, young, um, I saw prayer as a way of trying to get what I wanted mm -hmm. and that didn't work. And, uh, now I see prayer. Uh, when I pray, I don't pray for stuff. I pray for to understand and accept God's will. And yeah. uh, that works for me. Um, I mean, sometimes I have an intent, you know, specific things. Somebody may be ill, somebody may be going through something, mm -hmm. but it's, it's that we're able to accept it. You know, we're able to recognize what's happening and see it as kind of, um, I don't say good thing, but see it as maybe having some kind of a purpose that we don't understand and maybe trying to understand that a little bit better. Right. And it's hard. It's hard. Um, but that's, yeah. that's uh, I rely on it. And purpose is important, right? And, and um, because part of my, um, I don't know. I'm still developing my whole ideology of the world and the universe and all of that stuff. But right. Hopefully you won't, hopefully you won't stop. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. But the thing that I've come to understand as best that I can is that it's quite possible that all of this is absolutely meaningless, the world and everything. Right. But that doesn't mean that I can't have some 
small purpose or meaning in the things that I do and the things that I say and the people that I talk to and the relationships that I have, that those can have some meaning. But mm-hmm. do I think there's some larger meaning? I, 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 I can't get my head around it yet, but no, I think that it's probably all just an absolute accident that we're all here and what an amazing one it is, right? What an absolute amazing one. So um, the, I think the importance of purpose, finding purpose, especially for somebody who's trying to get sober, because like you said, in those very first moments, mm-hmm. you're like, damn it, I wanted to die and I couldn't even do that right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. to try and come to a, have a life of purpose is, I mean, it's a huge feat and it takes a long time, but <clears throat> um, I, I just think it's, it has become really important for me to not be as, as nihilistic as I would love, as I love to be still as cynical as I love yeah, to be. I, I, I love cynicism. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> I'd like to just revise what you're saying for myself a tiny bit. Yes. And that is a life of service. Um, and uh, in the Baha'i faith, it says the highest station we can receive, we can be at is, is, is service. Um, yes. I didn't understand that. But when I first started attending Baha'i meetings, when I got back to New York, um, I just felt inadequate. Why am I even here? Until I started um, setting up chairs, mm-hmm. <laughs> putting down the chairs at the end. I had something to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and okay, anybody need an errand? I, and just trying to you know, help people you know, do stuff, stupid stuff. But it, yeah. it gave me that sense of what you're saying, purpose. And eventually began to believe in myself as I escalated my service more and higher that um, whatever we do can be valuable, um, even the little stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need somebody to put the chairs up and take them down. We need somebody to do that. We need somebody to plan a whole year's budget. We need both of those things. We need somebody to design buildings. We need somebody to do this, build bridges, uh, to teach children. But I started off putting chairs up and taking them down. And that's, if I hadn't done that, I may not have gotten to the next step. And that idea of serving others as a way of, uh, of, uh, of approaching God, that was one of the important things for me. And it also um, gave me the reason why I don't need to drink because um, I have a purpose. I'm, I'm, I'm setting up chairs. I'm taking yeah. them down. I'm driving yeah. somebody to a meeting. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm asked to visit somebody who's ill. Okay, I don't want to do that because I get really nervous around that. But okay, I'll do that because uh, that person needs somebody to visit them and I'm, I'm, I can do it terrifying yeah. stuff but yeah but somebody has to do it and, and i grow by doing it yeah and it's um you know another thing that i've come to realize is that a lot of the the problems that i had with alcoholism with alcohol uh a lot of them and uh, being selfish in specific and being self-centered and being narcissistic these were still very much human issues human problems let alone alcohol problems these are things that people, you don't need yeah. alcohol to be uh, selfish, self-centered and narcissistic. Um, and it's easy to get down on myself and my problems in my own head. It's awful in there some days, you know what I mean? And the best way to get out of there is to go help somebody else with their problems, Yep. right? <laughs> Even if it is just chairs. Yep. You mentioned a word earlier that I, uh, I want to comment on. That was mm-hmm. the word ego. You have trouble with ego. And um, in the Baha'i faith, we don't have a sense of heaven or hell or devils or anything like that. But the closest we have to a Satan is called um, the evil whisperer. Evil whisperer. And that's mm. ego. That thing yeah. that's uh, always telling us, whispering in our ears that we deserve more. The world uh, you know, treats, needs to treat us better. We, we are better than others. 
Um, and uh, that can be, I mean, we need ego to, to, to live in the world, but it's that um, overabundance of ego. I think if we look at history, I see somebody like Hitler, which is um, a very traumatic example, ego. He, he, he wanted more, he deserved mm -hmm. more and look at the damage he did. Mm -hmm. um, and look at all of that. We can look at contemporary leaders around the world and uh, you sure. know, still have that problem. It is um, an abundance of ego, too much ego. That's, that's I think where evil comes from. Um, yeah, we don't, need, we don't need to go to uh, to fires and brimstone. We we have it here on on terra firma. That's very true as well. Um, <clears throat> you know, and it reminds me there was a guy. My dad had a friend, and his name was Johnny Apfel, and I don't know any. I can't remember anything else about him, but the it was something you just said, and he would say something he would he always said there is no heaven and hell heaven and hell is right here on earth mm -hmm. and it's just it just reminded me i don't know out of the blue but also the idea of of how much we do have and that we don't more is and it's it's fine to be ambitious and to want more and to create right. more and all that stuff right but like i was on a bike road yesterday and i was just cruising through and i was like this is great. This is like, it's beautiful. It was cool. It was sunny. I'm in California. Like, it's just, man, I have everything I want in this moment. Mm -hmm. And it was absolutely perfect. And it was, and again, I had to go and I, I, there's a stack of, you know, it says taxes, bank and bills on the whiteboard behind me. And I've got to go do all those things. And that's been up there for the last four days. But, um, but yeah, so it's, um, it is definitely something to remind ourselves of that uh, we don't have to have everything all the time. And in fact, we have a lot more than, than we like to, uh, to imagine sometimes. Mm -hmm. Then we let our, our ego get in the way and tell us that we don't. And I, and I think the other thing is gratitude. That's uh, another important part of um, just being grateful and letting mm -hmm. people know when um, you're grateful for them, grateful to them. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, and you know, I, I think, it's hard to, it's, everything's hard in early sobriety. Um, but when you're like, just do a gratitude list and they're like, Oh, I got to write five more things that I'm gra grateful for. Yep. Mm -hmm. But you know, the, that list gets easier and easier and the things get better and better. And sometimes it's like, I'm sober. There's clean water. I got to sleep in a bed, whatever it is. And those things, right. I mean, after time, um, can you talk a little bit about, uh, the, the writing workshop that you do. I, I love these things. I want to go to more. Um, I'm quite curious about the two week writing workshop in, in Atlantic city at this point. Yeah. Um, what does that involve? Well, we're doing a, we do a number of different length programs. Um, <clears throat> before the pandemic, we were supposed to go to um, Florida the, that week, literally. Uh, so I got postponed. We're going to Florida in two weeks to lead a, a week long writing workshop. I'll be doing one in memoir and one of my colleagues will be doing a poetry one. Mm -hmm. uh, every summer, we've been going to a city uh, in, in Europe, either to Wales, Scotland, or Spain, and doing a week-long one. And um, we usually do one in New Hampshire um, every August. And that one, uh, we just found out we were planning to go there, but the venue did not survive uh, COVID. So unfortunately, mm -hmm. we're not going there. So we're doing a shortened version in uh, Atlantic City. Um, it's not going to be two weeks, this one. It's, uh, it's going to be uh, just for four days. Um, the university I'm associated with, Stockton University, has a, built a campus right on the boardwalk in Atlantic City. So we're going to be putting people up on the boardwalk. Huh. And we're going to have, um, I'll be leading um, 
uh, writing workshops during the day and uh, we'll have free time for people to go to the beach, explore the city. And at nighttime, we have uh, several activities. We're gonna have a story slam one night, uh, professional DJ. We'll also have, um, we're working on getting uh, uh, tickets for some of the shows at some of the casinos, headliners and stuff like that. We just found out the band Fish is gonna be in town playing on the beach for three nights. I'm not a Fish fan. I don't even either, understand but what it is. But sure. people about it. And thousands of people's go. So that'll be happening at the same time. And so um, if anybody's interested, uh, like if I can give a website, that's murphywriting.com. Sure. We don't have that up yet, but we have other programs, murphywriting.com. And uh, I started leading workshops back in the um, 19, early 19, late 80s, early 90s. And people would say, how do you find time to write? And at the time, um, when I wasn't going to an artist colony in the summer, I would spend time going to uh, renting a hotel room a weekend a month. Mm. And uh, when I told people, I go, I rent the hotel room. That's why I find time to write. And they, people said, I wish I could go with you. So in 1993, I stupidly booked a block of rooms at a hotel, invited people to come with me. And um, that grew into uh, Murphy Writing Seminars, which is now Murphy Writing of Stockton University. And um so it's a, it's a, it's, it's a thing now. I mean, I never saw myself getting into the writing business, but um, you know, the university uh, uh, made an offer I couldn't resist about uh, seven or eight years ago and um, hired myself and my staff to run it. And um, we have a beautiful office in the, what's called the Noise Museum Arts Garage. It's a parking garage, but the whole first floor is art studios, galleries, and, um, and us, Murphy Writing. So um, that's, that's awesome. where we're based. So we're... We do programs online. We have some uh, online writing workshops as well. We do tutoring online. Um, we do professional development in schools all over the country. Um, so we do have a, a whole whole range of stuff. We just had two Zooms right before I got on here. One with a school in North Jersey for um, to work with uh, their uh, teachers for a 40-day program. Um, and then we also spoke with a school in New York City um, this morning about bringing a group of high school students down to the Stockton campus for a couple of days to do writing and to do nature. So um, these are mm. things that uh, we also do. And it's a kind of service also. Um, yeah. And uh, the people I work with, my colleagues, um, you know, that they, they believe, as I do, of writing to be um, a transformative uh, thing to do, to give meaning to your life. So um, <clears throat> it's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. I think I'm going to stop judging myself for using the word transformative. <laughs> I think, it's important. Change, I, I change think I'm life. over it. That'd yes. be the first thing you can do in changing is to change your life. Change your life. Um, and that's what your life is. Everything you've described. It is. Yeah. And, and that's our purpose is to grow and evolve. Yeah. Yeah. Um, four days in Atlantic city in August, you said in August. Yeah. August, um, huh. my, the first week of August and it's dirt cheap for we're trying to keep it under 500 bucks for everything, including room board workshops and everything else. So we should have that up on our website, uh, murphyreading.com, within the next few weeks. Uh, but you can go to our, our email and get on the email list and you'll be informed of that. Okay. Um, so that'll be just one thing. So you can come up to Atlantic City and uh, we get to meet in person. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Peter, thank you so much. This was really great. I really enjoyed this. And I am looking forward to digging around on some of your writings and, and the workshop and the website. Um, yeah, and thanks for thank you for sharing. Um, well, thank you, John. I'm, I, I, good to get to meet you and hear part of your story. And yeah, I, as I said, I, it's it's important. So thank you for doing it. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. Our music, as always, is by Neglect. You can find more of his stuff at neglect.bandcamp.com. And you can find us on all social media platforms that matter: Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can reach us at asforalcoholic at gmail.com. Talk to you later.
Yeah.